0: Except by me. To Martha, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we open God's word together this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we're thankful we have your word. We're thankful that it has been preserved for us down through the centuries and that we have accurate translations but we also have the original so that we can come to understand more precisely that which you have revealed to us. Father, we pray that you would open the eyes of our soul to the truth of your word today, that we may not be distracted by the cares of this life, by the plans for the afternoon or this week or reacting to whatever's happened in the past week, but that our focus will be upon you as the source of strength in life uh, and everything that we have that we might be willing to take up the challenge of our Lord to be disciples, to grow and mature to spiritual uh, maturity, that we might glorify you in every area of our life. And we pray that the time that we have in your word will honor and glorify you. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20, and today we'll just be looking at three verses, verses 17 through 19. And when we look at these verses, we might initially look at them and say, well, that just seems pretty simple. It's just another one of these uh, statements that Jesus makes where he is warning the disciples of what is about to transpire. But there's a lot more to it than that. And as I was studying this week, looking at this entire section going down to verse 28, which will end uh, end our study of this section in Matthew that began in Matthew eighteen one. I began to ask certain questions like, why is this here? Why did Matthew put this here? You know, that's one of the important uh, questions that we should all ask when we read the Bible: is why this, why here, why now? Why didn't he put this at the end when you clearly have a shift? Because it really doesn't seem like, like this is a statement that necessarily has to go here. After all, there are times in the Gospels when things are told out of chronological order. So why this? Why here? Why at this point? What does this have to do with the flow of the main theme that we've been studying? in Matthew 18 down through 20, which deals with this issue of trying to be somebody, trying to have status in the kingdom. this this thing that just keeps going on and on, and again and again, Jesus is confronting the disciples with the fact that you've just got your eyes on the wrong thing. You're looking forward to being somebody in the kingdom. You're looking forward to having some sort of position of prestige that, that's your focal point, and that's not right. That's not the mentality of a disciple. You need to be like a child, and as we've studied, being like a child did, did not mean that they um, were not uh, that they weren't self-absorbed or they weren't uh, focused on uh, other things. But it meant that they were, did not have position, because a child in that culture had no position or even presence in the culture. They had no status. They were to be a nobody. And uh, this is what keeps repeated here, along with Jesus teaching that, that uh, certain characteristics needed to be present in the life of a disciple. He needed to be someone who forgave. One of the things that's a roadblock to forgiving other people is we're so concerned about our own feelings and how we've been treated and what's been done to us that we are so involved in who we are that we can't forgive somebody else. And so it all of these things are, are wrapped around the same principle. Last time we looked at at uh, how this parable of the workers in the vineyard relates back to the rich young ruler. And in all of these, Jesus is teaching about uh, be, being a disciple, that it requires uh, humility in the sense that that you're not concerned about your agenda at all or or your own status in the kingdom, but the focal point is on service. And I've said it again and again that it's about service and it's not about status. And all of this is going to be brought to a conclusion in this last episode recorded in verses 20 to 28 when Jesus' Aunt Salome asks well, I want my boys to sit at your left and right hand when you have your kingdom. So we're going to get to that. But it's interesting how Matthew sets this up and structures uh, this. And there's a lot of things that we need to talk about here. I started making a list. We have the doctrine of the Son of Man. We have the doctrine related to... Uh, that of course the the death of Christ, but that 's a subcategory of the doctrines related to the suffering of Christ. We have doctrines related here uh, in terms of the baptism of the cup and what that means and and um, we have also statements related to leadership and and authority and how that is to be exercised by by a disciple by a believer and then we also have an emphasis on the Focus of service and serving one another as Christ has served us. So, uh, as I started listing this this last week, I realized, hmm, we won't get out of this chapter till May. There is a lot here because we need to tie it all together as well with a really good summary of what have we learned about rewards and judgments that are a part of every one of these these particular statements. So this morning we're going to focus on a key doctrine that's brought out at the opening, verses 17 through 19, and is returned to in verses 27 and 28, and that is the suffering son of man. Just looking at that title briefly, we could spend quite a bit of time talking about the doctrine of the Son of Man, but we won't due to time constraints. So we come to these three verses, verses 17 through 19, and we're told, Now Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples aside on the road and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify, and the third day he will rise again. Now, as we look at this, as I want you to think of this as an introduction, as a necessary transition in Matthew's thinking. Between the parable of the workers in the vineyard and the next event that happens, which is Salome coming to Jesus to uh, see if she can, uh, she can get Jesus to give a high place to her sons James and John. And as we read this episode from 17 or this section from 17 to 28, we have an emphasis on the suffering and the and the death of Christ on the cross in verses 17 through 19 at the intro. And then when we come to the end of the section, we have a return to that theme when Jesus says, whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. In both 2018 and then in 2028, we have the use of this term, Son of Man. And then both of those sections focus on what's going to happen in terms of the suffering of Christ and his death in Jerusalem. And it gets specific, and we get a specific understanding of what that is about in verse 28. So this serves to bracket to bracket our section in the military when you're or in the navy when you're uh, when you're shooting artillery uh, a principle is to bracket what the target so first you overshoot it then you undershoot it and now you've got the range and then you can nail it and language this is um, this is this does the same kind of thing when you are um, when you're structuring literature it, it frames uh, the thing that you are talking about, but it also introduces what, a, what, the, what the sub-themes are that are going on in this particular section. So at the beginning here, we simply see Jesus on his way to Jerusalem. Now let me plug this in a little bit to the broader perspective of the, of the life of Christ. We're told at the beginning of chapter 19 that Jesus and his disciples left Galilee and they traveled south. Uh, this would be in the vicinity of Jericho, but that they were in the region of Judea that's beyond the Jordan. So they are in this area that's probably about, uh, eight or nine miles or so to the east of, of uh, Jericho. And they are leaving this area along the Jordan and headed up to Jerusalem. Now, sometime in this area, if we read John chapter 11, Jesus is ministering in that area uh, and that's roughly the same time when he hears word that Lazarus is sick and may die. And so he tells his disciples that that sickness is for the glory of God, so we 're going to hang around here and continue to minister for the next couple of days. That took place at this same time, so perhaps these events uh, that we're, that we 're talking about in nineteen and twenty take place at that at, at that particular at that particular time or are very close to that time, and then Jesus is going to uh, go to Bethany but when we get to verse chapter 21 he's he, on this particular trip that's described they end up entering Jerusalem on the triumphal uh entry on the Sunday before his his arrest and his crucifixion one week before uh before the resurrection so if you think about it, here we are in Matthew 21 we're not going to get to the crucifixion and resurrection till chapter 27 so everything that occurs in the next six chapters is, all takes place during that period from the Sunday before the cross, Palm Sunday, until the cross, which is described in Matthew chapter, uh, chapter 27. So all of a sudden we're going to really slow down and narrow our focus to a lot of things that go on within a very short period of time. So Jesus probably went to Bethany, came back, and now is on this last trip to Jerusalem. We're told he's on the way up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is, you always go up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem has a higher elevation then a lot of, of Israel. So you're going up to Jerusalem. The, the old city of Jerusalem has an elevation of about 3,800 feet. But especially if those of you who've been to, to Israel before, you know that, that if you are down at the Jordan River, which is at the northern end of the, of the Dead Sea, you're at one of the lowest places that you can be on the face of the earth. The, the Dead Sea is 1,400 feet below sea level, and Jerusalem, the old city, is at 3,800 feet above sea level. So that's about 5,200 feet. That's pretty close to a mile of elevation difference between the Jordan and Jerusalem. So one of the things you should keep in mind as you're thinking about this and just getting a feel for what's going on is is that distance, uh, that linear distance, is no more than 20 miles. It may be a little bit less. So if you think about where Eldridge Road crosses I-10 to downtown, that's roughly the distance. In that distance, you're going to walk up a mile in height, 5,200 feet. So it's a, a huff and a puff. It's not too bad because you're not uh, oxygen-deprived. But it's a it's a good walk, and this is in the spring, so it's not going to be too hot. But the sun's going to be pretty bright because that's a very arid uh, desert area. So there, this is describing their walk from the Jordan to Jericho, which um, is a is a climb maybe of about five or six hundred feet. There's others in the entourage. We know Salome's there, but there's other women who are traveling with him. There's other people. When they leave Jericho at the end of this chapter, we're told that there's a mob that goes with them. There's the multitudes are following him, but there's still quite a few. And so Jesus needs to take his disciples aside in order to give them a a little more uh, personal instruction. Mark gives us a little more information about this. And he says, now, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was going before them. Apparently, Jesus was a faster walker than the disciples, so he's got a better pace, and they are always struggling to keep up in many different ways. And they, he's going before them, and they were amazed. He's really striding out. And then he takes, he stops, and he takes the twelve aside again, and begins to tell them the things that would happen to them. And so in Matthew 16, uh, and this goes back to these other events, these three other events where Jesus has described what is about to happen to him. And so in in the first of these events, I want to look at and these others briefly, is that we're told in Matthew 16:21 that from that time Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the following day. So this is the first of his warnings, and as we look at this, we should also notice that in Matthew 16, what follows it is Jesus then challenges the disciples with this same question that he's going to phrase another way, in, in later on in the next in the next section, when we get down to uh, verses 22 and 23, he's going to challenge James and John and say, "Are you willing to take this cup that I, drink this same cup that I'm going to drink?" And so the point there is that are you willing to suffer as I'm going to suffer? And he ties that. This idea of his suffering to to what is going on, and that the disciples are going to be uh, be a part of this. For in Matthew sixteen twenty four and twenty five, just after this statement, Jesus says to the disciples, "If anyone desires to come after me, if you want to follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me." Now, we studied that and saw that taking up his is was an idiom for submitting to authority, and so that's what he's saying is, it's not about justification or getting into heaven, it's about discipleship. Are you really willing to submit to the authority of God? And submitting to the authority of God is humility. Jesus, we're told in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, that Jesus humbled himself by being obedient, even to the point of the cross, so that Jesus constantly is emphasizing here that to follow Jesus means that we have to be humble that 's the same idea he 's teaching all through this section that it 's not about our plans uh, and our ambitions it is about or our status it is about serving the lord so um, in Matthew 16:25, he says, "Whoever desires to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it." And the question that's embedded there is, "Are you willing to lose your life so that you can have real life? Not eternal life, living forever in heaven, but but living a really good life on earth, no matter what the circumstances are. What the Bible refers to as the as the abundant life." So the first time that that Jesus announces what is coming, we learn four things. We learn that he must do these four things. They must have the way the grammar in the Greek reads is you have the verb, uh, dei, which means uh, that something is necessary, something must take place, and then it's followed by four infinitives. So each of these things must take place. He must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer many things from the religious leaders, from the, he mentions the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes in that passage. Third, he must be killed. And fourth, he must be raised from the dead. Those are the four necessary things that will transpire when he goes to Jerusalem. Then in chapter 17, chapter 17, he adds a little bit. We're told there, now while they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be betrayed. Notice that he adds this phrase referring to himself as the Son of Man. The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and the third day he will be raised up, and and they were exceedingly sorrowful. So what we learn in chapter 17 is that that he refers to himself as the Son of Man, that he will be betrayed. That's a new thought. That word is, same word in the Greek is used again in the Matthew 20 passage, that he will be delivered to the Gentiles. It's the same Greek word, and it means to be betrayed. So he's he introduces the idea that he will be betrayed, and then he says he will be raised the third day. So in Uh, 16.22, he also said that that he would be raised on the third day. So that's emphasized there. Then in chapter 20, he adds, he changes from from, um, uh, that he must go up to we are going up. He is now including the disciples in his destiny. This is your destiny too. We are going up uh, to Jerusalem and then the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and scribes, and they'll condemn him and deliver him. So he, he includes them that his destiny uh, is their destiny. Uh, again, he uses the term Son of Man. Uh, this time he just lists the chief, pri- chief priests and the scribes. He doesn't mention the elders, but that doesn't mean they're not there. He's just focusing on those two. And then he says, that they will condemn him to death. The word here in the Greek is katakrino, which means that this is a judicial decision. This isn't a, a sort of a personal condemnation, but this is referring to the fact that there will be a formal legal condemnation of him by the, uh, by the chief priests and the scribes. And then he adds another element. He says that he will be delivered, and it's that same word that's used for betrayal. He's betrayed to the Gentiles. So it's not just the Jewish religious leaders that are responsible, but it is also the Gentiles. He will be given over to the Gentiles, and of course that has to mean the Romans. And so now he introduces how he's going to die, which is through crucifixion. Just one, one comment here is that when we look often at, at the, the New Testament, especially in John, but it's true to some degree in the Gospels, the word that is that, that we often read in the English text is that the, the Jews did this, the Jews did this, the Jews did this, and unfortunately that that term, the Jews, was taken by many people in the early church to condemn all Jews, that, that, that this became a rationale for anti-Semitism and the persecution of the Jews, as Christ killers, actually, when we look at the way this term is used in the Greek, it's the Judeans, Judea. It's the same word, and it would refer not to Jews as we use that term today, as sort of a, a, a condemnation of all the Jews, but it would be the Judeans, and it's specifically referring to the Judean religious leaders in, in Israel. So, so the idea that that um, that this is the the Jews, and that 's a blanket condemnation of all the jews is is not justified by the uh, by the use of the word and the use in the text, so he 's going to be delivered over to the uh, to the Gentiles, and he's going to suffer. He will be mocked, he'll be scourged, and he'll be crucified. Now, this introduces another interesting idea that, that we have to understand as a backdrop to what Jesus is going to say about taking the cu- this cup and being baptized with the baptism with which he's going to be baptized, is that in, in uh, Reformed theology, they have a doctrine about the sufferings of Christ, that there's two categories of, of Christ's sufferings. There's passive sufferings and there's active suffering. The active sufferings are what happened when he 's on the cross when he and 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 the passive sufferings are all the whatever Jesus in his humanity suffered living in the devil 's world whether it 's uh, just the, the the inconvenience of living with a lot of sinners to the the more um, Uh, the the more active sort of suffering where he's mocked and he's scourged and that sort of thing and this is one area where I disagree with one of several areas where I disagree with Reformed theology in Reformed theology all of his sufferings are redemptive so that the passive sufferings are also redemptive but that really messes up that that theology isn't biblical it messes up a lot of your understanding because Jesus goes through physical suffering that is not redemptive and that's important for us to understand just hold on to that because that's the point here is that Jesus is going to end up drawing an analogy between the fact that he is suffering and that if we are willing to follow him are we willing to suffer also but he can't be talking about redemptive suffering because we can't suffer redemptively Okay, so we have to understand those distinctions. That will become more apparent as to why when we get into the next into the next section. But Jesus is going to be delivered up to the Gentiles to be mocked, to be scourged, and to uh, to be crucified. And it's only during those three hours on the cross, between twelve noon and three p.m., when God the Father imputes to him the sins of the world, that there is that redemption takes place. It doesn't take place uh, at any other time. When it finishes at 3 p.m., Jesus said it is finished. That's before he died physically. So the redemptive work of Christ just takes place during those, during those three hours. But one of the things that I wanted to point out here as we look at this is this term son of man. The Son of Man is used in several of these passages, and it's used again by Jesus in verse 18. The Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And then in verse 28, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. What do we know about the term uh, Son of Man? This is the most common title that is used for Jesus in the Gospels, and it's the most common title that is used by Matthew. Matthew uses the phrase uh, Son of Man, and, has G- and Jesus is referring to himself as the Son of Man 29 times uh, in Matthew. It's 13 times in Mark, uh, 26 times in Luke, and only 12 times in the Gospel of John. So it's the most common title used for Jesus. Now, the source of this ter- terminology, the second thing we should note, is the source of this terminology comes from Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. And in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel sees the vision of these four horrible beasts that depict, from, from, a, from God's perspective, the bestial characteristics of four great kingdoms that are going to come in chronological succession. The last kingdom is this, hor- is this horrible beast that they can't really be described, and that is a depiction of the Roman Empire in both its historic form and its revived form. So the imagery there in Daniel skips over the church age, which isn't mentioned at all in the Old Testament. And at the end is when we have this event take place, described in Daniel 7, 13, and 14. Daniel says, "I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven." Now, the the clouds are often a, a a term that's used to describe the divine presence, and so this indicates that the Son of Man is divine. He's not just human. Often, I emphasize that the term Son of Man means emphasizes his, his humanity, but Sometimes it means more than that. And here there's clearly from other things in the passage that it's emphasizing that he is also divine. And he comes to the Ancient of Days, and the Ancient of Days is God the Father. And he's coming to the Ancient of Days in order to be given his kingdom. That's verse 14. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. So we see here that the Son of Man is pictured as a as a figure in the future who is not only human but divine and who will be given a kingdom. And it's not until he is given that kingdom that he is going to be considered a kingdom, not that he will have dominion and, a, and, and glory uh, and a kingdom. So he's not a king now. This is one of the great points of confusion in a lot of contemporary Christianity as they think we're in some form of a kingdom Now, but to have a kingdom, you have to have a king. And we don't have a king right now. Jesus is, like David was in First Samuel 16, anointed, but he has not yet been crowned. He doesn't receive the kingdom until just before he returns uh, returns to the earth. He is currently sitting at the right hand of God the Father on his father's throne, as Revelation 3.21 says, not on his own throne. So, so that means that progressive dispensationalism, amillennialism, post all of those guys are completely wrong because they are, have rejected the, uh, uh, literal interpretation of scripture here. That, and when he comes, all peoples, nations, and languages will serve him. So his dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. And See, what Jesus is going to say when we get down to verse 28 is the son of man did not come to be served. So that shows that, his, that there's a distinction between his coming at the first advent and the coming that's depicted in Daniel chapter 7:14, when all nations will serve him. So he came at the first advent to serve and to give his life a ransom uh, for many. So the term son of man, first point, has the most common title used for Jesus. Second point. The source for Son of Man terminology is Daniel chapter 7. A third point is that the term Son of Man is a phrase that emphasizes the humanity of Christ, but not to the exclusion of his deity. What I mean by that is when you have a phrase in Hebrew because of the idioms, they would say if you have certain characteristics, you're the son of that. So if you're foolish, you're called the son of a fool. Oftentimes those idioms are not literally translated in, 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 in our English translation, so we don't catch it. They'll just translate it as a fool. Or if you're somebody who's very corrupt and destructive, uh, the Hebrew may read the son of Belial, that is, someone who has the characteristics of Belial, uh, they're demonic, they're corrupt, whatever, and that will just be translated as that they're corrupt. Okay, so it doesn't give you uh, a literal translation of that original idiom. So someone who is wise is called the son of the wise. Somebody who's divine is called the son of God, saying he has the characteristics of God. Somebody who's human, he's the son of man. So that's what we have in the phrase. It emphasizes his humanity, but not to the exclusion of his deity. On many occasions, Jesus clearly stated and emphasized that he was God. For example, he he asked Peter, who do men say that I am? And in Matthew 16, 16, Peter says, You are the Christ, the Messiah. Uh, the Hebrew word is Mashiach. The Greek translation of that was Christos, where we get our word Christ. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God, emphasizing his deity. And then Jesus says, Well, blessed are you, uh, Simon, because you have uh, flesh and blood. has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. In other words, you're right, buddy. You finally got something right. So... Uh, another passage, John eight fifty eight. Jesus refers to himself through the present tense verb uh, statement, I am, ego, me, uh, when he's in a confrontation with the Pharisees, and they clearly understand that he was making a claim to deity because they took up stones to stone him uh, for blasphemy. And in John ten thirty, Jesus said, I and my Father are one, and the word for one there is not a masculine, uh, is not in the... Um, a masculine case because then it would be one person. He's not identifying as a unity with God in that sort of, that, that's unitarian sense. But he, they're one thing. They're both God. And so he uses the the neuter there. And then there are other things that Jesus did to emphasize his, his deity. For example, he forgave sins. He did other things as well. When he changed the water into wine, when he stilled the storm, when he cast out demons, when he did many other things, when he walked on the water, he is demonstrating that he is God. He controls his creation. But in Matthew 9, 6, he heals a paralyzed man, and he does that in order to show that he has the power to forgive sins because when he heals him, he says, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees get all upset about the fact that he's, that how can this man say he forgives sins? Um, and he says that he, he healed a man how he says, uh, is it easier to tell a man to get up and walk or to say his sins are forgiven? Uh, so he makes the point that he can forgive sins. So Jesus clearly emphasizes that that he is he is God and only God uh, can forgive sins, as seen in uh, passages like Isaiah forty three twenty five and compared to Mark two seven. Also, the term Son of Man was used by Jesus to affirm his deity. This is a fourth point. Matthew twenty six sixty three to 64, as Jesus is being uh, grilled by the high priest in one of the illegal trials, the high priest answered and said, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, it is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven a direct allusion back to Daniel chapter 7, but clearly he is using the term Son of Man here to affirm his deity. And then a fifth point is that the term Son of Man is also a term that relates to Jesus' work on the cross as the kinsman redeemer. He is the Son of Man because a human being has to die on the cross for us. And in the Old Testament there's two words that are used that relate to redemption there's the Hebrew word padah, and there's the Hebrew word goel and the goel describes the kinsman redeemer this is pictured in the in the book of Ruth that Ruth has to be uh, provided for by Boaz who is a close kinsman and he uh, he is able to gaal to redeem her and to and this was part of the responsibility of a kinsman if you uh, if someone were, uh, for example, if they got into debt and they had to go into slavery, the kinsman redeemer could purchase them from slavery. The kinsman redeemer had a responsibility to track down a murderer of a near relative to see that justice was done. The kinsman redeemer was responsible to see that just, justice was served in other legal matters as well as to see that debts uh, debts were going to be satisfied so this brings in the picture of the idea of redemption and a redeemer and so the term son of man is loaded with all of these concepts and when we get down to the end of this section in verses in verse 28 Jesus is going to unpack that idea that the son of man did not come just to be served but to serve and to give his life a redemption, as a redemption for many, not just as a ransom. It's the idea of a payment of a price. That's, that's at the core of the word redeem. Whenever we hear anything related to redeem, redemption, redeemer, a price is paid for something. And that for something emphasizes substitution. And so here we see that Jesus is talking about what he is Paying, He is giving his life, a transaction, an economic transaction, takes place on the cross. Paul refers to it as the canceling of the debt that was against us. That's what redemption is. It is a wiping out of that debt. It is forgiveness. It is forgiveness of all sin, Adam's original sin and all sin in human history, That is the basis for each individual realizing that just because the price is paid doesn't automatically save everybody. The price was paid at the cross, but each individual has to trust in Christ in order for that price to be, that price to effectively pay for them. The price is paid at the cross, but it's applied only when we each individually trust in Him. So that salvation is the result of that, when we realize that Christ paid the price we don 't have to pay it, we can 't pay it we can 't come up with enough good works to pay it we can't be uh, we can 't buy it, we can 't give enough money to purchase it we can 't go through enough ritual and liturgy to get it. we can only get it because Christ paid for it and we accept that payment on our own. That's one of the many pictures that Scripture uses to help us understand what we have in salvation. Now next time we'll come back and we'll look at how this sets things up for what happens with in this conversation with uh, Salome and what is going on with this drinking of the cup, this baptism of the cup, and what this describes with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to be reminded of your grace, and to be reminded that that Jesus' death was was planned. It had a purpose, a function. As Paul says in Galatians, when the fullness of time came, that Jesus came, that there was the right time, and you set all of this up, and that it was not accidental, but it was a planned provision for our salvation. Father, we pray that there's anyone listening who's never trusted in Christ as Savior, that you'd make the gospel clear to them that that unlike any other religion, Christianity believes that, that our salvation is based not on what we do, but on what Christ did, that we could never do enough, that Jesus Christ paid it all, as the Scripture says. He paid the price in full so that all that is required is that we trust in Him. We're relying upon His work, not our work, on his death, not ours, and that he and he alone provides for our salvation. And, Father, for the rest of us, what's embedded in these in these chapters is a challenge to us not just to be satisfied with being justified and redeemed and being a new creature in Christ, but pressing on to spiritual maturity, being willing to follow Jesus. Being willing to take up our cross, being willing to be, to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God and not to exalt ourselves. It's not about our plan, our purpose, our agenda, but it is about your plan, your purpose, and your agenda. And give us the strength and the courage to submit to your authority and to live our lives for you and not for ourselves. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.